From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She decided to fly to Poland to help Ukrainian refugees. And even though Arvada City Councilwoman Lisa Smith is well-versed in disaster response, she could only guess at what to bring on the trip. You know, I, I packed a water filter and a sleeping bag thinking I, I, you know, I didn't know what the lodging was going to be. I didn't know what the water was going to be. I didn't know where I was going in. Now she's back in Colorado and joins us. Then this state is praised for secure elections. Yet Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters has become a national hero among election conspiracy theorists. And it was actually Tina that talked me out of a hand count. She's the one that said we could actually trust our elections. So how she got from there to here, I will never know. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After disaster strikes, Lisa Smith of Arvada springs into action. She volunteered when a flood hit her neighbors in 2013. She was there after wildfire decimated parts of Boulder County. And last month, Smith, an Arvada city councilwoman, spread her humanitarian wings and traveled to Poland. She's just back from two weeks helping Ukrainian refugees displaced by the Russian invasion. And upon landing, by the way, in Colorado, back home, she immediately adopted a dog. Councilwoman, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you return from an epicenter of trauma and you decide, I'm going to rescue a pooch, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think for years we've felt uh, a connection to dogs and it was a bit therapeutic to come home and, and rescue a dog here and, you know, help me unpack some of the stuff that I had encountered and heard and saw. The dog's name is Homer, is that correct? That is, it's Homer. Why Homer? Homer, well, I guess we're we're a bit nerdy in our historical figures and so we thought it would be good to name him after a stoic Greek philosopher and poet. You say that uh, adopting the dog was a way to help unpack some of what you experienced, some of what you witnessed. What was at the top of that list to unpack? Well, I guess I didn't expect when I went into Ukraine to have experienced a situation in which you were being the person to decide who is going to be coming in that van, who's going to be transported out and who isn't. And it was a bit amplified after a bomb had hit our city, and it was just becoming a little more urgent. And to have to make a decision of which family or which person can go in the van or, and get safely to Poland is a pretty powerful feeling. And it's, it's hard to look someone in the eye and not know where they're going to be tomorrow. That is, you crossed into Ukraine. You were helping people evacuate. And how do you then do this sort of triage to decide who gets on the bus and who doesn't? It's hard. I don't think anyone ever can explain what's the right way to 
to grab someone or not. When you go to the the train station, there's a lot of other refugees that are coming from different parts of the country, and it's it's often a central central point. And so it's pretty devastating to hear of the the bombing of a recent train station. But you go there and you can talk to people right at the entrance and say, I have seven uh, seats left and they make an announcement on this loudspeaker and then people will run over and you'll try and fit as many as you can. And sometimes you squish them up as much as you can. Sometimes it's animals, there's dogs, there's cats as well. So um, it's really as quickly as you can get people in, fill it up and then go. I'll just say that on Friday, the world learned of an attack on a train station in Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine, which left at least 50 people dead. Bombing continued to be heavy in the east on Sunday. So who, whom did these buses belong to? Tell us a little bit more about who you were working with. Sure. The organization I'm working with is called Operation White Stork, and it's named after the Ukrainian national bird, the stork. And what we were doing was um, we would buy a van or a vehicle because rental vehicles could not go into the country. And then we would load it with as many medical supplies. We call them IFAC kits. They're kind of these combat triage kits. And we'd load as many as we could and we'd drive them in uh, to a city. And we would meet up with some of our other counterparts and pass them off. And then they would continue pushing those forward to the front line. So it was kind of a chain link supply chain that was going on. And once we were able to offload those medical supplies, we would go to um, some of the train stations and load up any of the refugees that were wanting to go to Poland. And then we would cross the border with them. We also have uh, a lot of volunteers in Poland and Ukrainian people as well wanting to help. So they often will um, take their own personal vehicles and do transports on their own. And so the buses were filled with supplies in one direction and then filled with people in the other. Um, were they sometimes filled entirely to or pushing capacity? Yes. I mean, we had people in the trunks. If we, if they were comfortable going, we were comfortable in bringing them. And these were families as well? Yes. There were um, many older grandmothers, mothers, and, and children um, I think one of the transports I had, the lady had two small, small dogs. And it was interesting to see how you would watch the families just so stressed, so exhausted, get into the van. They had no idea who I was. They were just trusting that hopefully people are good. And we would get to the border and you would watch their emotions. They kind of change and unfold and and become a little more comfortable once they knew they were getting to safety. And, and it was interesting seeing some of the vans that had animals and how that played a role in kind of calming the the situation. Hmm. In a way, I suppose that it uh, eventually calmed you as well when you got back to Colorado. Uh, was language a barrier? I thought it was at first, but I think the urgency trumped the language barrier. Uh, the first time I went into Ukraine, I had a translator with me. And the second time I said, I don't need a translator. I can figure it out. Uh, that's one more seat that we could put someone in. And so we used Google Translate. We had printed off documents that had it in English and Russian and Ukrainian to try to help. But uh, there were so many humanitarian and goodwilled people that uh, I think there was a general understanding that there was a language barrier, but we were doing things for the right reason. What, if any, is your connection to this place, to this conflict? What made you go? Well, 
I have a personal connection in the sense I have a friend there. His name was Alex, and I had visited Ukraine previously. We were friends, and I messaged him and said I was coming to Poland and Ukraine, and he said, well, you know, better hurry because I just got recruited, and he was going to be leaving Monday. So I was able to see him on Saturday briefly uh, before he left and before uh, any of the bombs hit in that city. So uh, that was very memorable for me and, and very impactful, but what was more interesting, I thought, was looking around at the cities, looking around at the volunteers, there were a tremendous amount of veterans. And it wasn't just American veterans. It was, you know, people from Germany, people from England, Irish. I mean, it was just everywhere you looked, there were different nationalities, but a lot of veterans. And I think there's just this inherent calling for veterans to, to step up and help, and certainly in those type of environments. And you are a veteran, we should say. Yes, I was in the Air Force. Was this like anything you had dealt with in that time? It was not. You know, I, I sometimes feel bad because I was not able to deploy when I served in the military um, while other people did. But I think it's something that you mentally prepare for and train for. So maybe there's an element of comfortability in some of the veterans going to Ukraine and helping. I understand that as you prepared to leave for Poland and Ukraine, you really weren't sure what to pack, what you'd need, and entirely what you'd find when you landed. Now just talk to us about what it is to prepare for a trip and have a really very little information about what it's like once you get there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you work in the disaster community, I worked with Team Rubicon for several years, um, you're used to going to environments that you're not sure what it will be like. And so I was looking around, I was looking through my backpacking gear, through my military gear, thinking, what could I use? What do they need over there? And I didn't have much guidance. All I knew was they needed some help getting medical supplies in, they needed help with refugees. And so, you know, I, I remember packing Pedialyte packages, thinking maybe people need some of this. And I, I didn't really know. And uh, I've, I feel very lucky that when I did land, I, I found a lot of my, my network was actually already in country. So. Uh, Actually, five of my wedding guests, to include my officiant, were already in Poland and Ukraine. So I think it was uh, comforting knowing that there were already people that I knew there. You mentioned Team Rubicon. This is a disaster relief group. So these, these were folks you met through that work? Correct. Mm -hmm. When did you feel least uh, safe? Um, when we were at the train station, these air sirens went off to alert that there would be a bomb and you have about a 10 minute window before it actually could strike. And it went off and I looked around and everyone seemed fine. No one seemed to be taking cover or panicking. And I turned to a volunteer and he said, he's been here for a couple of weeks and they happen all the time and not to worry. Um, so I, I listened and I, I didn't take cover and we just kept trying to find people to put in the van. And uh, then three bombs had hit that city. And I remember looking and seeing smoke coming from just past the train station. And I thought, uh-oh, I should have probably listened to that. And uh, the person next to me looked and said, well, I'm not going to tell my wife that just happened. So we were <laughs> kind of making this awkward humor in the sense of, you know, there's an emergency here. What do we do and, and how do we react? But um, it was certainly scary knowing that we were close to being being hurt. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're spending time with Arvada City Councilwoman Lisa Smith, who is just back from Poland and Ukraine, helping refugees displaced by the Russian invasion. Smith is an Air Force veteran, and uh, I understand you'd actually just started a new job when you decided to go to Poland. I guess I guess your employer <laughs> couldn't really say no. Yeah, I, I did call them and I hadn't even accrued one day of leave. And I said, could I get two weeks off? I got to go over to Poland and Ukraine. And and they supported me and let me go. So I'm very grateful. It's the state of Colorado. It's HICPUF. HICPUF is uh, healthcare policy and financing, I believe. Um, okay, so what about your own friends and family? How did they feel about your mission? Well, I would say my family was not thrilled with the idea of me going over there, but they knew that I was going to go. So I think they were very supportive. A lot of people said it wasn't surprising when I uh, told my city manager and, and council, Arvada City Council, that I was going. Uh, they were very supportive. They they covered down, making sure everything was good in, in Arvada to let me go. And uh, I think they they weren't surprised either. I think when you work in the disaster space and an emergency happens, you just go. And and people support that. I wonder if you run into folks now back at home who wonder how best they can help and whether your sense of that has been transformed. How do you answer them? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that I, I noticed when I got there was how grassroots everything was. There were so many organizations on the ground that were trying to help and everyone just kind of creating their own network and channels. So um, I think it depends on how you want to help. So if you want to help with medical supplies and and helping evacuate refugees, you know, personally, Operation White Stork has been tremendous in doing that and, and also leveraging a lot of the local volunteers. So it's not a big organization that's been around 100 years. It's something that is formed from this crisis and is utilizing local resources and supports. So I would encourage operationwhitestork.org. I'm curious where you slept, if you slept, whether rest was even a part of the equation. Yeah. So we ended up staying at a Jesuit university. So uh, it was interesting because you would have priests and nuns that were just hustling to help you out. And they gave us some of their dorms. So we were sleeping uh, in shared dorm rooms. Nuns were right next to us. And uh, very interesting environment, but very gracious that they were opening their homes and their property to us. Do you think you'll go back? Well, I don't know if I can take any more time off of work, <laughs> yeah. but I, I surely wish that I could. I think that's something if you talk to a lot of volunteers that come back from a, uh, a humanitarian crisis, they will talk a little bit about that guilt of leaving and while others can't. So I think, you know, I struggle with that a little bit, but I know there are great people on the ground still. So uh, I'll, I'll keep encouraging people to go over there if they can. The guilt of leaving, partly because there's still so much work to do, I gather. Correct. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, we're, we're doing really well in, in America, despite some of our arguments and our disagreements. We're doing really well compared to some of those other countries. And I think that perspective is, is humbling. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective with us, Lisa. Of course. Thank you for hosting. Lisa Smith. City Councilwoman from Arvada and an Air Force veteran who recently returned to Colorado after two weeks volunteering in Poland and Ukraine, helping those displaced because of the war with Russia. When we come back, Purplish has the story of debunked 
election conspiracy theories that have taken root here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I look at him like a shooting star. Jim Belushi talks about his brother John and overcoming loss on a new episode of Back From Broken. When you see a shooting star, you go, and then it's gone. It's like magic, right? I look at John as that shooting star. Listen to Back From Broken, a show about recovery, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from Lift the Label. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Voting integrity and false claims that the 2020 election was stolen were front and center as Tina Peters secured a spot on the Republican primary ballot over the weekend. The indicted Mesa County clerk is running for secretary of state. Peters has taken center stage nationally when it comes to election conspiracy theories. CPR public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland Tell that story in the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, as well as what this reveals about the many ways our election system is under pressure and how policymakers are responding. Hundreds of people gathered at the state capitol recently to stand up against what they consider nothing less than the death of democracy. You and I know from the 3rd of November 2020, when we saw five states shut down their election count in the middle of the night, we all knew in our gut we had a problem there, you know? And so from a national security, national sovereignty perspective, we are on very, we're on a knife's edge, a a razor's edge. It was a rally to support one woman, Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk. Tina Peters is a political prisoner. She's she is the Joan of Arc here in Colorado. She's the watchman on the wall that's that's been trying to to sound the alarm on this, and we got to help her out. Peters is accused of doing something that a few years ago might have been unthinkable for a local election official: breaching the security of her own office's election equipment in search of proof of unprecedented voter fraud. It just made sense to make an image if you're going to upgrade your computer, right, and you're going to install some software, you go, well, I better back up what I've got in case I mess up or something, right? Well, they were going to mess up. They were going to delete some files off of my computer, uh, your computer, actually. So I just backed it up. And you know what's interesting? All the things, all the things that they accused me of back then are not even on the indictment. Her actions have made her a star of the national movement to discredit the 2020 presidential election. Enough so that Trump associate Mike Lindell was there to rally supporters on her behalf and to raise money for Peters in her campaign to be Colorado's next Secretary of State. I came to Colorado today because you have here in Colorado the key to the whole nation because you had a great county clerk Tina Peters that did her job. In the past year, Colorado has become a central front of the movement pushing false claims about the 2020 election. 
It's spread from activists to clerk's offices and now into the midterm elections. And the situation is already having some very real consequences. Today, we're going to tell you the story of Tina Peters, how this first-term clerk in western Colorado became a hero to the national forces pushing election conspiracy theories in a state that's long been praised for its accurate and secure elections. This story involves identity theft and leaked passwords, a South Dakota symposium of election conspiracy theorists, maybe even the guy behind QAnon. And it could result in changes to the rules that govern the people who administer Colorado's elections. I've been watching all of this unfold since the first hints of it broke last summer. And it's been a gripping story with an unbelievable number of twists and turns. And at its core, it reveals ways in which our election system is under incredible pressure from the outside and the inside. All right, so I realize like most of this started after the 2020 elections, but I kind of want to get a better sense of who this Tina Peters is. Like, Give us somewhere to start. Yeah, so she was first elected in 2018, and she was a political newcomer. She didn't really campaign on running elections. Which is the job of the... <laughs> the position she wanted. Well, it's one of the jobs. But, you yeah. know, she talked a lot about reopening closed DMV offices and reducing wait times, which is, you know, another thing the clerk's office is in charge of. She's a gold star mom, which is a big part of her identity. And she, she talks about it frequently. Hmm. Her son was a Navy SEAL and he died at an air show in a parachuting accident. So she runs on this issue that many people can agree on, on the MV stuff. Yes. She has her two years in office. But then we get to the 2020 election and this much more polarizing Tina Peters emerges uh, with President Trump's claims as this national conversation gets a lot more polarized, of course, that the election was stolen. Uh, Do we know, like, was she on board with his claims that it was a rigged election from the start? Because he was talking about it even before November. It doesn't appear that she was. Shortly after the 2020 election, Peter signed off on the county's audit of the vote. Mm. So that's a process that confirms that the machines counting the paper ballots Mm. counted those ballots correctly. Mm. And what's more, Peters actively defended the system for the next several months. Mm. The funny thing, the ironic thing is that in January, I actually went to Clerk Peters and said, hey, there's a lot of mistrust around this election. Why don't we go back and hand count 2020? That is Mesa County Commissioner Cody Davis. He's a Republican. He was elected in that election in 2020. As you can hear, he was getting a lot of pressure from people in the community who doubted the results of the election. Mm. Davis told me he just wanted Peters to do more to reassure people. Because we are paper ballots. Let's go back, hand count the entire thing and just prove to the people that they can't trust their elections. And it was actually Tina that talked me out of a hand count. She's the one that said we could actually trust our elections. She convinced me that our elections are completely trustworthy. She went through the entire process. So how she got from there to here, I will never know. So after the election, she's facing some pressure to go and revisit the results already. And she initially says, no, we don't need to do that. We don't need to go and do the hand count. But obviously, she does come to doubt the results and take some pretty dramatic action, as we'll hear. How did she come to believe that the machines in her own office were rigged? We don't know exactly why she changed course. She certainly did, as we're aware of now. 
The Washington Post did report about a meeting that happened in April. Hmm. Apparently, Tina Peters met with a man who was working with Mike Lindell. This man said to overturn Biden's election. And this person allegedly made a presentation to Peters about election fraud theories. That seems to have been part of of what persuaded her potentially, because the Post reported that Peters also required her staff to attend a meeting with this person. With the person who was purveying these conspiracy theories coming from the national source. And that really shows how everything that has happened in Mesa County is connected to this larger national effort by followers of President Trump to discredit the 2020 election and Joe Biden's win. So what happened after she heard this theory and and maybe started to believe in it? How soon after that was the alleged security breach in Mesa County? It wasn't that long. It was in late May. And so this happened during an annual update of the voting machine system. So this is considered a routine update. Uh, It's a very secure process. Only a few people are allowed to be in their room. It's like Uh, a software update? Yes, and it's okay. it's people from the state, the county, and the voting machine company, but a very limited number of people. Mm-hmm. They're required to have a background check just to be there, and each county does an update. And this is really sensitive stuff. They're trying to keep it pretty limited because the architecture, how these machines work, if that gets out, it could kind of compromise, from what I understand, the way the election system works. It could make it more vulnerable to attacks. Exactly. And Peters is accused of bringing in an unauthorized person into this secure area. Even now, almost a year later, no one has officially said who he was. A mystery person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and this mystery person made copies of the hard drives and attended the software update, but actually under a different person's identity. So they're doing this complicated work or whatever it is, the once a year work to update these machines. And this person shows up under what, like a fake name? Yes. And that's one of the things Peters is accused of is identity theft for using the name of a local man and getting an ID badge under this local man's name and introducing this mystery person as that man and representing that false identity to the state officials. Wow, that's much more spycraft than you uh, usually hear about in county elections operations. And then what, when did he actually, I, I think I read the copy was made like on a Sunday night and that beforehand somebody in the office had turned off the security cameras that are watching over this election equipment? Yep, that's right. And those cameras are, are typically on. Huh. So that was one thing that came out of this. We know all of these details about this unknown person who attended the build under the false name and everything else. We know these details because of all the legal filings that have come out of this case. Uh, There was also a state lawsuit that prevented Peters from overseeing the 2021 election. Hmm. And more recently, state criminal charges that she's facing for what she allegedly did. So again, Peters is accused of letting someone copy her county's voting machines, hard drives and take pictures of the passwords, which are giant security no-nos. And I know we're going to get into what happened to all that material and how all of this came into public view. But first of all, why? Why would anyone do that? Like, what is there to be gained? What could she and this unknown person allegedly be looking for? Peters says she was searching for proof that the election was stolen by one voting machine company in particular, Dominion Voting Systems. My job is to listen to the people that I serve. And I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, unaffiliated, Libertarian, Green Party. I don't care what um, affiliation you are. Everyone should be 
um, concerned if there is something going on with these voting systems and tabulators. Everyone should be. The voice of Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters. And when Purplish continues, Benta and Andy look at another way Colorado has a starring role in national election conspiracy theories. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Inspired by Booker T. Washington's Back to the Land movement, which aimed to give African Americans property ownership and self-sufficiency, O.T. Jackson founded a self-sustaining black settlement 30 miles east of Greeley in 1910. People who saw the potential headed to the prairie, built homes, farms, and churches, a school, a restaurant, and a cement factory. The land was dear to them, so they named the settlement Deerfield. Minerva Jackson ran the thriving town. Picnics, fishing parties, and dancing enlivened Deerfield. Land value increased astronomically over a decade. But two decades after its founding, the community collapsed under repeated droughts, the Dust Bowl, and the Great Depression. Today, it's a ghost town, but there are efforts to make Deerfield a part of the national park system to help tell the story of America's black experience. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters is at the polarized center of debunked election conspiracy theories. We are getting context today from Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Let's rejoin public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. We're going to take a bit of a detour for a moment from Peter's story into yet another way Colorado is playing a starring role in national election conspiracy theories. Oh boy. So Dominion Voting Systems is based in Denver. It's a Colorado company that has now become central to false theories about the 2020 election being rigged. Hmm. And one of the most damaging claims started here in Colorado. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the person at the center of that He's a right-wing podcaster named Joe Altman from Douglas County. Uh, He's generated some attention because he talks a lot about some of his political enemies being hanged for treason. Anyway, he claims he infiltrated a call by a quote-unquote Denver Antifa in which he said a man who identified himself as a Dominion employee reassured the others that Trump would not win the election. And then someone interrupts and says, what are we going to do if effing Trump wins? And uh, he responds with, and I'm going to paraphrase this because obviously I didn't write exactly what he wrote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is don't worry about the election. Trump is not going to win. I made effing sure of that. Ha ha ha. By the way, it's a claim that has, doesn't have any documentation behind it. There's no recording. There's no names. There's no other witnesses besides Altman saying this. Right. He took some notes you know, uh, when he was listening to the call, he said, but you know, there's not audio. You're right. But the claim got amplified by national outlets that are conservative and allies of President Trump, OAN, Newsmax. And it became this big part of the false story about election fraud, that Dominion rigged the election for Biden. Altman says Coomer had the title and the power to exercise his vitriol through Dominion. If Coomer is investigated and found to have indeed tampered with a presidential election, Such an action could be tried for treason. 
And I'll mention that Dominion vehemently denies all of this and is now suing a lot of people and media organizations who spread this claim for defamation. Okay, but that false theory has obviously been pretty powerful. If Peters was acting on it, what was she looking for or the people she was working with? Like, what did they think, again, was on those hard drives? They were looking for evidence of how they believe the voting machines might have been used to take votes from Trump. Hmm. And to add an extra layer onto these theories... They believed the trusted bill, that annual software update, Mm -hmm. was being used to hide the evidence. So this evidence that Dominion was flipping votes. Brief recap, there's a conspiracy theory that this Denver-based election company, company whose equipment is used in most of Colorado's counties and in a lot of other states, too, stole the election for Biden. And Peters, when she helped make these hard drive copies, believed that she was preserving evidence of that gigantic fraud. And it's important to say that outside cyber experts who've looked at a report on the contents of those hard drives say they see no evidence of vote changing and that the files that were erased were not part of the official election record. But there are still a lot of people who believe something happened with those Dominion machines. Okay, let's fast forward. You said that Peters made these hard drive copies back in late May of 2021, but what she allegedly did didn't become public until later that summer. And I still remember it vividly. Members of the media got an email from the Democratic Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, uh-huh. uh, that her office was investigating a potential election security breach in Mesa County. Republican County Clerk Tina Peters is being ordered by our Democratic Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, to step away from the voting system. Like, literally, she is not supposed to log on to the voting system until her office can explain how their passwords ended up on the Internet. Yeah, that's pretty dramatic stuff as far as what comes through our email inbox. So what were you thinking, Benta? I'd say at first it was you know, somewhat mysterious and pretty yeah. confusing. It wasn't clear what had happened or what Peters was accused of. Because none of this was publicly. We had been totally in the dark pretty much until now about this stuff. And Peters had been in the news for some things, but basically, by and large, you know, most people didn't know who Tina Peters was yeah. in the media. So we're just trying to confirm whatever details we can and, and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Everyone wanted to talk to Peters, of course, and see what she was saying. Mm-hmm. But it turned out Peters wasn't in Colorado. You know, on the day that this email went out about the investigation, she was actually attending an election conspiracy theory conference, a cybersecurity symposium hosted by Mike Lindell. Ah, you have the pillows. Yes, yes. And so the first way anyone heard Peter's side of things, her defense of her actions, Uh was actually from the stage at that symposium. When I started having citizens come to me and tell me, that something didn't seem right. Something didn't seem right in our local uh, city council elections. Something didn't seem right in our county from years ago to the 2020 election. And they wanted answers. And I said, you know what? If there's a there, there, we'll find it. And I've made that pledge to the citizens of Mesa County and all over Colorado that the people elected me. Not the, not the Secretary of State. And Peters immediately went on the offense, accusing the investigation of being a political attack and framing her even, hmm. because Griswold is a Democrat and Peters uh-huh. is a Republican. Mesa County is on the uh, western slope of Colorado, and we are the last bastion of freedom in right. Colorado. 
so we would be a big jewel in our governor and our secretary of state's crown to take over my office and control the way you vote. How do you like that? Okay, so dramatic stuff. She's at the symposium directly addressing what's unfolding publicly now about, you know, this alleged taking of the information from the voting machines. And then did the hard drive images then become part of this symposium? Were they dissecting them and analyzing them at this event? So it's not that clear from stories I've read about the Mike Lindell Symposium. The files were discussed briefly by Ron Watkins, and he's a famous figure in in this world. Mm -hmm. But then he actually stopped himself as he's discussing it Mm -hmm. because apparently his lawyer called. And he said uh, that I should put out the statement and... I just learned that Conan James Hayes may have taken, without authorization, the actual hard drives from the Mesa County, or the Mesa, Colorado County Clerk, and he needs to produce those hard drives immediately and return them to the clerk. And we should stop this data review until he produces the hard drives. Wow, you can tell you're kind of getting into fraught legal territory when you have an attorney watching your every move and calling you up in real time to change what you're saying. But Ron Watkins, by the way, believed to be one of the people closely connected to the QAnon conspiracy theory, the uh, the creation and spreading of it, right? Yeah, that's right. Journalists who followed that conspiracy theory have found evidence that Ron Watkins may have written many of the posts from this figure Q at the center of that theory. Repeat that. Ron, Ron, did you just say... Everybody, this is important. Quiet, quiet. Yeah, this is really important, guys. It's important. Everybody quiet. Ron, did you just say that someone took all of the hard drives from Mesa County office just now? Uh, So what I said was, I just learned that Conan James Hayes may have taken, without authorization the actual hard drives from the Mesa, Colorado County Clerk. And what stands out here to me is it's clear Watkins is concerned about whether someone's broken the law getting this data from the Mesa County voting machine hard drives out to the public. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the last. It really comes up at this cybersecurity event. That's Watkins and Peters in South Dakota at the symposium. Meanwhile, back in Colorado, there's this investigation into what Peters may have done. It's just getting started. What happens next? Where does it go from there? So, yeah, Peters is in South Dakota. Colorado officials want to question her. Um, And and she was gone for weeks, not in South Dakota the entire time, though. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mike Lindell said he was essentially hiding Peters in Texas. Wow. So that that was another whole thing. Like, where where is Peters? Um, You know, she eventually did come back to Colorado Mm -hmm. and the investigation really didn't go quickly. I Mm -hmm. mean, the FBI uh, eventually raided her house and in the fall looking for evidence. Finally, in early March, a grand jury returned charges against Peters and her deputy, including a bunch of felonies for the security breach. And Peters is now awaiting trial. And a lot of this is going back again to the copying of those hard drives and how it happened. Right. It's it's that incident and everything surrounding it. Um, there's other things, too. But yes, that's exactly right. And I, I think even in the early stages of this whole thing, when we mm-hmm. didn't know what, how it was going to evolve, it was clear that whatever was going on in Mesa County didn't just impact Mesa County. It had implications for Colorado's 63 other counties and, frankly, for elections across the country. 
One thing that is notable about this case is that a lot of the underlying facts aren't disputed. So Peters has admitted to doing some of the things she's accused of, but she believes she had every right to take the actions she did. Hmm. Justified. Yes. And she she attends rallies like the one at the state capitol we started this episode with. And she also speaks to supporters in smaller settings. And what I've heard at those events is that these supporters really, really back her. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're doing for future generations. Thank you, Tina, for all that you're doing. I can't say how much I admire you. Thank you so much for your service. I mean, your story is just... It's a movie that I'm sorry that I had to, you had to go through. We need you there to protect our clerks because we know that you will because you've done everything possible to go through every fire possible to protect us. Wow. Uh, it makes me think it's like Donald Trump was talking about rigged elections back in 2016 and then more intensely in 2020. He lost and you can see how that has sown the seeds where people are now prepared to believe that Tina Peters is sacrificing herself to save America because if that's your worldview that it really was stolen then I guess that's how you see someone who's taking these dramatic actions like Peters is. That's kind of the through the looking glass thing here. Mm. On her side, Peters supporters, you're right, you know, absolutely believe she did what was right mm. and they feel like she's being persecuted for doing the right thing. Uh, People who have not been persuaded by that, who think she did the absolute wrong thing, and that includes a lot of Republicans, just find this this whole thing crazy. Uh, Officials in her county, and they're all Republicans, by the way, everyone, they've really been in the other corner, criticizing what Peters did and all the trouble and expense it's brought to the county. Uh, They've said the audits and data show the elections were secure and accurate. Now, I I do want to say Commissioner Cody Davis... You know, he was the one who wanted Peters to hand count the 2020 ballots. And, and early on, he said he was open to hearing her perspective on things, what she found, what her supporters thought. But by the time I talked with him last December, he was convinced that there was no there there. At some point, yeah, you're going to have to start ignoring because it today has brought zero evidence of Dominion ever changing votes, like zero. Um, so at some point, you're going to have to say, unless you guys bring me something new, unless something else arises, some actual evidence that rises to the level of fraud actually exists or is brought forward, we've got to move on. Wow. Um, you know, to draw a little bit of a contrast here, you know, in the run up to 2020 election and right afterward, we heard a lot from state and county Republican officials saying that no matter what you're hearing about the national election, you can trust your state and local system. And that's still the case. Tina Peters is an outlier for sure. But at the same time, there is, I don't know, a bit of a dynamic there. I can't imagine like a Republican county commissioner would enjoy, like we just heard, having to go up against Atina Peters when he knows that she has supporters who are so dedicated, who really believe this stuff, when she has supporters like the ones that, you know, we've just heard from. Yeah, that's right. And these supporters live in his county. They're A lot of the people elected him <laughs> to be county commissioner. Yeah. Um, and we know it's kind of beyond just, you know, voters as well. People back Tina who are in higher profile positions. So we have a, another Republican clerk in Albert County <laughs> who copied his voting machine hard drive. The state is investigating it, but it would appear that the clerk was more cautious there with the information. So I, I don't expect it to be as explosive as what we're talking about here with Peters. But yeah. 
Um, There are Republican county commissioners as well who are suing Colorado's secretary of state over the election system. And then at least a couple of counties are rethinking whether to continue using Dominion voting machines. Election law, the stuff governing all this, is set at the state level. Mm -hmm. I know state lawmakers, especially Democrats, have been really paying attention to this whole Tina Peters saga. And I want to talk about they've come up with a bill that addresses some of their concerns about it, right? Yep, that's right. Democratic Senate President Steve Fenberg, he's the main sponsor of this bill. And many parts of it correspond actually to things Peters is alleged to have done. For instance, she directed staff to turn off video surveillance of voting equipment. This bill requires that the cameras stay on at all times. Um, Copies of Mesa County's hard drives, the voting machine passwords, those ended up online. If this bill passes, that would now be a felony. So it'd be a felony to share those passwords, which kind of amazing that it's not already. Anyway, what do do Republican lawmakers say when you talk to them about this? They're generally opposed, and and it's worth noting that the bill passed the state Senate with Democratic support and only one Republican yes vote. Kevin Briola? Yes, actually, yeah. He's one of the most moderate Republicans for people who are familiar with the legislature. And um, so now this bill is in the House, and Democrats control that chamber, so I expect this bill to pass the legislature, but there's kind of a like, tricky political dynamic there with Republicans. What is it? Well, I mean, first off, we, as, as we've mentioned, you can't take the politics out of this situation. So you've got Democrats are in charge of the legislature. Democrats are pushing this bill. The Secretary of State really supports this bill. Yep. And so that kind of puts Republicans on edge. A lot of them feel that the Secretary of State is partisan and they disagree with her on a lot of other issues separate from Peters. Um, and I talked to Matt Soper. He's a relatively moderate Republican in the House. He represents most of Mesa County in the legislature. So a lot of Tina Peters constituents. He said he does like some things in the bill, you know, increased security for voting equipment and increased security around who can access voting equipment. But he doesn't think the state should necessarily be writing brand new policy for this one incident in Mesa County, especially when we don't know how it's all going to play out legally yet. And he also said it's tough for him personally just because he represents so many people who have such strong feelings about what Peters did. I have close friends who fully support Tina. I have other constituents who believe she should immediately be locked up without a trial. And I'm more of the perspective of, hey, let's step back. We have a criminal justice process that's actually working. And let's see what happens. I uh, guess I have more the let's observe type approach. All right, so that's Matt Soper. What do Colorado's election officials think of this bill? The county clerks, he said, Secretary of State's pushing it. What about the people who run these elections since it is kind of aimed at them? Right. They'd be most impacted by it. And the Colorado County Clerks Association has been vehemently in support of this bill. They did a press conference at the state capitol before the first hearing, and they they strongly back it. And one thing I've heard from clerks from across the political spectrum, um, you know, most of our clerks are Republicans. They said that they want clerks and people running elections to have more information about how the system works. And they think that the less information you have, 
the more susceptible you are to, quote, bad actors who are mm. trying to discredit the election. So that's how some of them framed Peters. As being being more susceptible. Yes. They said low information. A low information clerk is mm. what I've heard a number of them say. Um, you know, she she's going to disagree with that, but that's just how they're framing it. And they said that they like that this bill requires more education and training and more requirements for people who will be overseeing elections. So to wrap up this episode, here we are, what, 10 or 11 months after Tina Peters let someone, and we've been saying allegedly, but she did admit to this part, copy the hard drives of her voting equipment, right? Yep. And now she's facing state criminal charges. There's also still a federal investigation ongoing, which we didn't even have time to get into. Now there are concerns that other counties could elect clerks with the same views who might refuse to follow state election rules or might take similar actions and kick off even more investigations and forever ongoing politicking, investigating. And now there's a Democratic bill meant to head some of that off by making the things that Tina Peters did even more illegal. And what makes this whole story, you know, I guess, even more unusual for, from my perspective is <laughs> that for most of my years covering Colorado politics, the stories we've done about our elections uh, were about how secure they are. So back when people were worried about electronic voting machines getting hacked, yep. Colorado was using paper ballots and making sure that every vote had a paper ballot trail. Yep. So you can audit that. Um, that was well before 2020. And in talking about the audits, we were the first state to require what's called a risk limiting audit after each election. And that's to be sure that the equipment tallying the paper ballots worked properly. Yeah, you know, the states come under fire by people that don't like mail voting, but the truth is that that paper ballot system is very secure and, and, and is renowned as such. We've heard over and over that the state has the gold standard for elections. Right, and even though we're an all-mail ballot state, it, that's not totally true because people can also vote in person. So you have a lot of options. You can vote in person on yep. election day if, if you want to. And so it's been a real reversal to suddenly have a lot of people, voters and some local officials that we've talked about, Peters, completely lose faith in this process and to try to work to dismantle it. But also, Colorado wasn't really that important to the 2020 election. We were not a swing state. Mm -hmm. Biden won here by a large margin. So I, I think it kind of shows how widespread the effects of all these claims from President Trump and his allies of a stolen election are. A state you might have every reason to think is outside of the fray, and yet here we are, deeply embroiled in it. Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny with the latest episode of Purplish. Find it everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Glad you could join us. Thanks to producer Anthony Cotton, public affairs editor Megan Verlee, and audio producer Shane Rumsey. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.